If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And if, uh, if you're using one of the Bibles there in the seats, it's on page 1711. This is part two of this, uh, this teaching from this, uh, this section. One of the, the, the deepest wells of, uh, of explanation of who Christ is and, and what He's done that we find in, in all of Scripture. Let's read verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us to see more clearly who you are, to understand the significance of your incarnation and your life and death and also your resurrection and ascension. Father, set our hearts on things above where rust and moth do not destroy, that we would... uh, treasure the things that are eternal. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The verse that Mike read earlier as part of the uh, assurance of forgiveness ends with these lines, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And the question might arise, how is that good news? Bowing the knee to another is not usually something that we look forward to. We don't like to be told what to do. From a very early age, our hearts are against being told what to do. When correction comes our way, most of the time we bristle, at least at first. We want what we want. It was curious as I was preparing for this sermon, by the way, last week was part one and it looked more at verses one through four. This week is part two looking more at verses five through 11. It was curious as I was preparing for this and reading through a sermon that great uh, English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones 
preached on the subject that he went right to this matter of verses 9 through 11 that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. Spent almost the entire sermon on that topic, which is a little bit curious for anybody who is maybe an aspiring theologian or an amateur theologian even. You come to this passage and you immediately look at uh, verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And also verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And it captures the imagination of a theologian and wondering what this possibly could mean. It seems like a conundrum, uh, an unsolvable mystery. How can one who is the God of the universe empty himself? Set something aside. How can equality with God be a thing to be grasped? Or in the uh, language of the King James Version, and uh, more actually more accurate in this case, um, to, the, uh, to the original Greek, it is uh, robbery, not grasp, but robbing, equal, robbing this, count it robbery, to call himself equal with God. Captures the imagination, and we'll look at what that means because it's one of the most significant points for us as Christians to understand who Christ is and to also understand the dangers of some of the misunderstandings and false teachings that have arisen throughout the centuries about who Christ is and what he's done. Many good hearted efforts to try to reconcile what is logically sometimes irreconcilable. And yet, these good-hearted desires and interests lead, set us on paths, can set people on paths that lead to ultimately destruction because it's a worship of a God. It's a worship of a Christ, a Messiah, that doesn't actually exist and can lead to all kinds of other uh, errors in our lives and misunderstandings about who God is who we are, and how God has saved us. So, to the point though, looking at the end of this, and why is this question of every knee bowing such a central thing uh, in this passage? Well, Well, first let me say, it is a central thing in this passage. In fact, it seems to be where Paul is leading up to in this, is explaining why Jesus why Jesus is worthy of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. You see, the ascension, the ascension of Jesus, and when we say ascension, it's important to note that sometimes we think of ascension just being Jesus going up in the clouds and rising up and leaving the earth and and going into heaven. And we, we can't say a specific place where heaven is. But when the people of of the biblical times heard the word ascension, they would have thought first about a king assuming a throne. Or perhaps a conquering king with a great victory and becoming the king over a new region. Or more closely to this example, 
an exiled king, a wrongly exiled king coming back to reclaim his rightly ruling over a region. We talked about how this book of Philippians uses the word gospel multiple times and how the word, the very word gospel was used in ancient days to mean good news, particularly of a victory by a king that freed a people, that conquered a, a bad king, or, or well, it was used by both bad and good, but it was referring to this news that a new king was there, or sometimes a new king was born, or one king died and a new king has assumed the throne. And so for Paul, we don't want to get hung up too quickly on the theological questions here and miss the point that Paul is leading us to, and that is that this Christ, who we'll learn more about, this Christ, Jesus, is now fully on the throne and ruling. And you say, well, Jesus was God before. Why is He even more so? Well, because there was a hope that was proclaimed in the in the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, there was a hope that a descendant of David, that is a, a human king, a promised human king would again come and reign and rule. A good king who was going to bring peace to his people. And again, that's a major theme of Philippians. The peace that God gives to his people. Paul expresses it in one sense in being freed from the anxieties that we face in life. In being freed himself, experiencing a contentment, whether being in want or in plenty. He tells us that we can can, uh, express our desires, our needs to God. Through prayer and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He uses this language as well in verse 5, when he starts to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And all of these great truths are are, are applicable to us as human beings because of this concept that God has united us with Christ. We have union with Christ, which is expressed over and over throughout the New Testament in this language of being in Christ Jesus. It's curious language for us. It may be foreign language for us. I can't think of really that many examples that we use that we say we're in something else or in someone else. We say we're in the church, but particularly with relation to another person, we're in somebody else. We, we just don't use that language. So it's foreign. But the concept that is true for us is that this king that we're bowing the knee to and that we're confessing as Lord with our tongue has united us with him so that we're not only subjects in His kingdom, servants doing His bidding, but He says we're joint heirs with Him. That we rule with Christ Jesus. 
He has shared his inheritance even as a ruler over creation. So in a very real sense, in a very real sense, we even now, as those who have been united with Christ, experience the joy, the peace, and the responsibility of being rulers with Christ. Now, with that, it's helpful to go back to the beginning of the passage and understand the example that Jesus sets out for how a good ruler rules. You see, because there are so many examples of people who have responsibility and authority over us in our lives who are not good leaders, not good rulers. And in fact, every one of us who has responsibility in some area of life knows that we fail in various ways and at various times. Notice that power is easy to abuse. The more power you have, the easier it is to abuse it. I'm thankful that today is this International uh, Women's Day, and it is a chance to celebrate the fact that uh, in many cultures, women are receiving equal pay with men for doing the same job. Something that some of us as somewhat conservative uh, politically in our views, sometimes have a hard time appreciating. We should understand that a good ruler understands the intrinsic value of every person in their kingdom. Even those with certain disabilities, but much less, excuse, even those with certain disabilities and various, various strengths that we may see, deem as, as, uh, as um, as less than others. Now, I, I said that, and I want to be careful not, not to confuse the topic that I brought up. Not to say women have disabilities, because that's nowhere in the Scripture. That, that just came out wrong, and I need to just say it. I, there's no way to easily come back to that. In fact, we learn from the Scripture from the very beginning of Genesis, God created them male and female uh, after His image. And though He gave them different responsibilities... In some senses, he, he, he made them equal in value, equal in many abilities, and certainly desire, uh, uh, um, worthy of equal pay for doing the same job. And we can go through with other various examples of how uh, those with authority and those who rule uh, abuse authority, take advantage of certain people, oftentimes feed their own self-interests at the expense of others. But here's the example that Christ has set for us that Paul presents as an example to us who are joint heirs and rulers with Christ. I know I'm over-caveating that today, and I'm going to caveat one more thing. Because some in theological traditions that are uh, more theologically liberal, and that means that people who don't believe that the, the, the Scriptures are uh, true in their fullness and, and, and inerrant, some emphasize Jesus as an example and de-emphasize 
or even deny that Jesus is the full Messiah, Jesus' resurrection, the truth of the gospel, the importance of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel, the, 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 the teaching that the gospel is the only way for salvation. And yet at the same time, we should not let that remove the truth that's in the Scriptures when Jesus is presented as an example. And so Jesus is an example that we should follow in many cases. And Paul says so explicitly, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being a full accord, one mind. We follow in this example, and this is the example that Jesus sets as our good ruler. And that is verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Actually, I said and. These are the same thing, but I'm going to break them up and explain them. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So let's talk about first verse 6. What does it mean? Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I said earlier, the King James Version explains this as, it did not count it robbery to count himself equal with God. And I think this gets more at the central meaning of this passage. Some have explained this in saying that Jesus didn't hold on so tightly to all of that, uh, that, 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 that thing, but, but was willing to let it go and, and uh, not exercise it in, in some way. But I think more accurately, what this Greek text is really speaking to, the robbery is saying and affirming that Jesus is fully God. It's not that he was stealing something from God. Or in the language that we used last week, we looked at last week, and I really encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon from last week if you did not hear it. Jesus wasn't filling himself up with empty glory. We looked at that term that's sometimes translated vain conceit or conceit, and how that really specifically means empty glory. Glory that's not deserved. Glory that you're trying to take from somebody else. Robbery of somebody else's glory. And throughout this whole passage, there are some multiple plays on words that don't always come out in our English translations. And this phrase, this concept of glory, and this concept of emptiness, it's one word earlier, but you notice that these two verses separate out the two words and in one place it says um, uh, he emptied himself and then later in verse 11 we read about the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus wasn't practicing some type of empty glory by claiming that he was God himself. That he is God himself. That he was in the very form of God was not a statement that was robbery for him to say. It was not thieving. It was not empty glory. But he was fully God. But while he was fully God, while he is fully God, 
He emptied himself. Verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You see, it's the exact opposite of empty glory. It's deserved glory that he somehow sets aside or that he somehow doesn't practice. At the same time, he doesn't lose it. He doesn't risk not having it sometime. And yet he chooses to not engage it, to not practice it. He empties himself of it. One illustration that was given that is somewhat helpful and all illustrations fall short on this is that of, um, of a Native American warrior king who has a beautiful headdress that he wears on the throne. And the story goes that at one time there was a child who fell down a well. And this king had immense strength and was the only one who was strong enough in the community to climb down the well and carry the child back up. And so he took off the headdress, setting it aside, and climbed down into the well to rescue the child. And in so doing, in no way was any of his glory removed, even though that's a poor and and, and incomplete example just by being a visual representation of his glory. It might help us to see something of how when Christ becomes human, humans can't see his glory. When you look at the story that's told in Revelation of Jesus revealing himself to the Apostle John, the picture that's depicted is greater than than a mighty warrior angel. And yet as a human being, Jesus didn't have that form, that visual glory that we associate with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son that they have and they deserve. In Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah is prophesying of this king, this servant king, this servant king who is going to set aside any kind of visual uh, uh, representation of his glory. And he says that he was a man who is despised by humanity. He uses the language uh, that he is a servant, that he was stricken, smitten, afflicted. That his death would even be not just a painful death, but a cursed death. The Old Testament law that says that anyone who's hanged on a tree, which includes hanging on a cross, is cursed. It was meant to be a criminal's worst execution and an example to those around, saying this is someone who is against the rulers of this land. And that's exactly what Jesus was accused of being against the rulers of his land. Of course, at that time, it was Roman occupation. It was cursed, cut cut off from his people. Nothing that they would look on that says that he deserved glory. The language is picked up here in this passage that Paul uses or writes that he was obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. I said earlier that some 
would like to look at Jesus' example but deny His miracles and His claim to exclusivity in offering the way of salvation. But the fact that Jesus was born as a human being and took the form of a human being was not enough to bring salvation to the people. He had to take that on to the point that He didn't just go up in the sky and disappear. He died a death just like you and I do. Or just like you and I will and every other human being has done. He was obedient to the point of death. He entered humanity in its fullness, dying that death. Even a death that was cursed on a cross. And why did He die that death? Because the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. More than that, the wages of sin is death. And death is separation from life. Death is separation from God Himself. You see, the punishment for, for, for sin is a separation from God. The cursedness of a cross is saying this person is not a citizen of this place anymore. This person has rejected this nation and is cursed, is banished. It's not just painful. It's not just an example for those who are watching it. It is a declaration of status of this person. And that's why tying the themes of Philippians together again, looking back from a few uh, weeks ago, the theme of citizenship in God's kingdom is again central to Paul's thinking. And the explanation of who we are in Christ, being children of God, being joint heirs with God, being co-rulers with God, and also being citizens of heaven. But the only way to be a citizen of heaven is to to be cursed in one sense as citizens of this world. To experience that that pain, that, that separation, and that's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Now that's something that is not an example for us. We don't all have to go to a cross, be hung on a cross to participate in Christ's death And yet, Jesus explains this to His disciples even before His own death, that we are called as followers of Christ to pick up our cross and carry it. To follow in His example. I may be wrong about that reference to Luke. Don't quote me on that. Um, But but we're we're explaining in the New Testament, we're explaining, pick up our our cross and and follow Him. Paul talks about frequently in this this letter to the Philippians, the call as Christians to experience suffering on Christ's behalf. That we are called to enter into this suffering with Christ in this world because Christ has suffered for us. But what we can't do in all that 
is we can't pay the ultimate price for our own sin. Or we can pay the price, and that is that we die separated from God. But we're incapable of rescuing, rescuing ourselves and having the eternal life with Christ. Of being united with Christ and therefore in right relationship with God again. And for that, for that only the sinlessness of Christ can pay the debt we owed by taking our sins with him to the cross and paying the debt that we owed. And by doing that, releasing us from that debt and Christ giving us his righteousness that we would be joined with him and united with him. Now, last week we talked about what stops us, what keeps us from doing that. And I said that at the beginning of this, this, uh, this sermon, that one of the major things is that we have an aversion to bowing our knee to another and saying, yes, we will follow and do these things that you say that we should do. And with many people, we have a right aversion because we've experienced pain and hurt from following them. But with many others, we, we can't say the same thing. We have many, hopefully, good experiences of somebody exercising authority and protecting us. As children, hearing our parents give us warnings, don't do that. Stay away from this. Pursue this path. And with God, when we followed His law and understood it rightly, Hopefully we've had the good experiences as well. That we know that to do good results in good things. And yet even more than that, in our relationship with God that has been fulfilled in Christ, it's the experience of God's words that say you are forgiven. You have been made safe and whole in me. Where you have failed, I have succeeded, God says. That carry far more power to remind us of the goodness of God. And direct us back to give us hope to pursue His good things and His good word and His good law and His good commandments. Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a servant in part so that we could have the example but also reason to follow him it's one thing if someone sits in a far away place and directs drones to go in and attack another thing having no risk himself for any of the things he's directing at a distance it's an entire other thing for someone who has given us an instruction to enter into the messiness and the risk and the danger himself and give validity to the circumstance. To say what you experience in this life has meaning. To express in a way that we know is true, I care about you, 
and I'm willing to suffer on your behalf. We're called to do the same thing on behalf of others. And in so doing, point those others to the one who has suffered for our salvation. And ultimately won a victory that deserves glory. One of the most curious things about this passage, actually, I found as I was studying it, was, was this little interplay at the end, that little phrase. He says, to the glory of God the Father. This whole thing has been about Jesus and Him being God and Him emptying Himself of this glory and Him deserving the glory and Him deserving the, the knee being bowed. And then they throw, Paul throws in this little phrase, to the glory of God the Father. You say, what does God the Father have to do with this? Yes, they're working together, but this is Jesus' moment to shine. But here's the beautiful thing. There's a beautiful thing about the relationship of the Trinity and how it works together. It's the opposite of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And that is that when one succeeds, all of them experience the glory. There's no selfishness. There's no hoarding. There's not even a concern, oh, Jesus just, the second person just one-upped me and now he's a little bit more than, than I am. But when every one of them is doing their role on the team, if you will, every, all the other ones, when there's a great play, says, yes, that is our team, that is our play. And every one of them is glorified. What would it look like in the church if that was the case when we glory in one another's victories and celebrate the victory, the biggest victory that Jesus has won for us in a way that sets aside any efforts toward empty glory on our own behalf. Now, if you haven't listened to the sermon from last week, go back and listen to that because I confessed all of my own, not all of them, but a lot of my own attempts at empty glory. And so I don't offer these words in some type of boasting sense. But as one, like all of you, who is guilty of seeking after this empty glory and needing day after day to find true glory in God the Son, in God the Father, in God the Holy Spirit. With that, let's close in prayer. Oh Lord Jesus, we glory in you. We delight that you have won this victory by emptying yourself, taking the form of a servant, being obedient even to death, death on a cross, so that in you, and in your resurrection, and in your ascension, and in your ruling as king over us, we might experience something of that glory with you. Satisfy our hearts, Lord. Delight us. Remind us how much that you delight in us as your creatures, made in your image, knowing you, joint heirs with you, in your kingdom. We pray all this in, Je in your name, Jesus. Amen.